Coming up today, Natasha explains the rise of the four-day working week, Matt Burgess talks to us about the return of ID cards, and Matt Reynolds talks us through what the animal kingdom can teach us about social distancing. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host James Templeton and joining me this week are Natasha Bernal. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when Amazon withdrew two job adverts for intelligence analysts who would be required to monitor labour organising threats against the company. Amazon removed the listings shortly after Vice published a story about them, saying they were not an accurate description of the role. Zoom shares hit a record high this week as the company announced blowout earnings for the second quarter of 2020. It made as much money in the past three months as it did in the entirety of 2019, beating the already optimistic predictions of analysts. Revenue rose 355% from the same time last year to $663.5 million. The video conferencing platform has seen explosive growth in 2020, fueled by the increase of remote working during the pandemic. It was also the week when the US Court of Appeals ruled that the National Security Agency surveillance program exposed by whistleblower Edward Snowden in 2013 was illegal. I never imagined that I would live to see our courts condemn the NSA's activities as unlawful and in the same ruling credit me for exposing them, Snowden tweeted from his base in Moscow. And it was finally the week when we found out just how huge the extinct shark Megalodon was. So the prehistoric shark was 16 metres long, it's more than twice as long as a great white shark. In fact, its dorsal fin alone is as tall, or was as tall as an adult human. It's little wonder that the shark inspired the Mega Shark series of films, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. It includes great hits such as Mega Shark vs. Giant Octopus and Mega Shark vs. Crocosaurus, a personal highlight. <laughs> really? You've seen both? No, I've actually seen, I think I was confusing it with Sharknado, which is another mm. film about a tornado that kind of is a shark. And I've seen one of them, but I, I can't remember. I mean, there's only so many giant shark films you can watch, really. It's very, very true. Um, Zoom has been doing tremendously well, as you said, Natasha. I'm a little bit Zoom fatigued. I don't know about you lot, but I've sort of gone back to phone calls and turning webcams off. I'm sort of bored of little squares of, of people and my own face on the computer for half of the working day. Are we, are we all feeling that sort of Zoom fatigue? Depends on who you're on the Zoom with, I think. <laughs> I don't know if that says more about us than anything, James. Like, you just don't like the sight of our faces anymore, maybe, <laughs> after so many months. Is that it? Is that what you're trying to say? It, I think it's what Vicky said on the podcast a couple of weeks ago when she talked through her big Zoom feature, that you you've completely stopped looking other people in the eye. Not that like I stare right at people when I talk to them, but it's like this weird disconnect that you've had with almost everyone in your life for the past five months as you sort of stare at a small version of yourself staring back at you listlessly. 
I also find that I'm a real pacer. I really like to walk around when I'm having phone calls. And Zoom just puts a distraction, usually in the form of a browser window, right in front of your face. So I'm, you know, I'm looking at the screen, but really I'm looking at, you know, whatever's on on my my browser. Whereas when I'm on the phone, I'm not very often in front of a computer. So I actually find that I pay a little bit more attention when I'm kind of wandering around. Of course, we're on a Zoom call now, and I am devoting 100% of my attention to all all three of you. I am relieved that you don't pace around impatiently while we do the podcast. We managed to keep you still for about 50 minutes a week. What have we learned this week, Matt Burgess? Uh, This week, I learned that the island of Santa Catalina, um, which is off the coast of California uh, and is the island that is featured in the Mac OS uh, Catalina uh, operating system, is... Well, it has a population of bison. However, those bison are not native. um, And in December 1924, um, 14 bison were shipped to the island uh, by a film company to appear in a film. However, they didn't actually appear in a film that was planned or any subsequent films um, that were planned for around the same sort of time. And when the film crews left, they left the bison there. And since then, the population has grown and and they're now sort of an attraction on the island. Do you ever think that they sort of look mournfully across the 35 kilometres of water that separates them from mainland California and sort of long for the open plains of America? I I think I would, but I'm not sure if a bison can see 35 kilometres or not. Um, (laughs) I haven't haven't really looked into that, but if I was, I would. I was one of them. I would definitely be doing that. Sad. Uh, Matt Reynolds, what did you learn this week? I learned that lobsters pee out of their faces. So they've got little nozzles under their eyes which squirt urine several lobster lengths, I think five or six lobster lengths in front of them. And this urine contains chemicals that they use to communicate with each other. So whether it's a threat or it's like, you know, come and get me, you know, in a kind of attractive way, um, they're trying to kind of convey these messages. So they're peeing and they're chatting at the same time with their faces. And I'll reveal more on how useful that is later on. Please do stay tuned. Natasha, what did you learn this week? Oh, this week I fell into a kind of internet rabbit hole. I found a supposedly obscure law in the US state of Connecticut that requires pickles to bounce when dropped one foot to be considered true pickles. It is called the pickle law. Whether this is true or not, apparently vexed to the state's official librarians for years, so they decided to investigate. It turns out two pickle packers took pickle packers called Sidney Sparrow and Moses Dexter were arrested in 1948 for selling pickles that were unfit for human consumption and the judge determined that real pickles should bounce when dropped from the distance of one foot. These pickles did not bounce and the men were fined $500 which was the maximum allowed by law and the pickles were destroyed. The headline in the local paper that day was pickles lack bounce two men arrested. So... If your pickles bounce a foot, I guess you are legitimately eating good pickles. I have not tried this out, though. You kind of have to sacrifice one of your pickles in order to find out if the rest are good to eat by hurling it at the floor and seeing how far it bounces. It's a worthy cause for someone who eats pickles, which I do not. (laughs) But someone Uh, someone can test it, I'm sure. I have a big a big jar of pickles in the fridge. Um, I'll be, it, I'll be b- bouncing pickles the second we finish the podcast, <laughs> and I'll report back. Uh, I learned cool. uh, a food-related fact this week. Um, why do cops eat donuts? So it turns out that 
back in the 1950s. Donut shops in the US were some of the first food businesses to stay open until really late at night or start baking so early in the morning that they were open during the middle of the night anyway, so opening at 4am for example. So that made them popular with cops on night shifts who needed somewhere to take a break and write up reports and there wasn't really anywhere else to stop and have a sit down and that association and the popularity of them has stuck around to this day. So it's kind of boring but it's true. So there we go. Um, we've got an event to tell you about. Wired Health Tech is taking place virtually, of course, on September 22nd. It's a brand new event all about the innovative tech and ideas behind the patient care of the future. It's being broadcast live throughout the day with loads of great speakers and interactive workshops to enjoy. Speakers include Eric Topol, who's one of the most cited medical researchers of all time, Jennifer Doudna, the co-inventor of CRISPR, and Heidi Larson, the director and founder of the Vaccine Confidence Project. We've got a great deal on our all-access event pass for podcast listeners. Both you and a colleague or friend can attend all the virtual sessions, including the workshops, for the low, low price of 90 English pounds. That's a saving of 50 quid. It'll be an insightful and inspiring virtual day, so please do take us up on this great offer. To find out more and book your discounted tickets, head to wired.uk forward slash health dash podcast. That's not .co.uk, it's .uk. Matt Burgess, the URL again, please. It is wired.uk forward slash health dash podcast. It's going to be a great day and we hope to virtually see you there. Our first story this week, Natasha, is about how hard we're all working. Yeah, as always, I seem to have a sort of bone to pick with everything to do with the office and how wrong everything is. And so basically, this is just my latest instalment of that. During the coronavirus pandemic, thousands of workers have already been asked to sacrifice a portion of their salaries to help their employers to avoid mass layoffs. In exchange, many have been offered a four-day week for the very first time in their professional careers. So we took a look at whether the time for the four-day week has finally arrived. The idea of working four days rather than five is proven to work. It's more efficient and it helps companies save money, but it's taken the pandemic for employers to realise this and truly embrace this. Now, you just said it's more efficient and it helps companies save money. I know companies, I don't know much about business, but I know companies, they love making money. So why do they take the whole world to go to hell and this this pandemic to take place for us to finally be convinced about the four day working week? Yeah, great question, Matt. So it's because there's been no real incentive to change anything at all. So people forget that the five-day working week is actually quite a recent human construct. Up until around 1920, people used to work six days a week, Monday through Saturday, with Sunday as their day of rest. So the idea of a two-day weekend only caught hold during the Great Recession, and it was helped along by the Jewish Sabbath. But the motivations for it were also economic. The only way to save thousands of jobs was to cut the amount of working hours in the week. Just over 100 years later, we're basically in the same situation again. The interesting thing, though, is that we know for a fact that four-day week works. So we can look back to 2008, not 100 years ago, when Germany rolled out, and I'm going to say the name of this, please don't 
judge my pronunciation is the Kuzabite, which is the short week scheme during the financial crash to mitigate mass unemployment by subsidising a reduction and reallocation of labour. And again, it's been used during the coronavirus crisis. Now, the, the weird thing here is that our biggest barrier is mostly not one of logistics or productivity or money. It's just cultural. So in the Western world, there's a particularly odd struggle against the traditional nine to five. For a very, very long time, hard work and long hours have been equated to doing a good job, especially in places like the US, the UK and Australia, even though it's complete nonsense, which makes it really hard to break out of the bad routine. The four day week has been seen as the refuge of, sort of parents or older people who have chosen to scrape back some time with their families despite the perceived cost of their careers. It's the old adage of that you're less likely to be promoted or recognised if you work part time or flexibly. So the, the interesting thing here is that when you make the four day week a norm, it, things can change really, really quickly. A third of UK businesses operating on a four day week reported improvements in staff productivity. This is from research from Henley Business School last year. More importantly, though, it ended up saving companies that offer it £92 billion a year. So big companies have toyed with the idea of a four day week. Microsoft famously trialled it in Japan last year and found that people were happier, more motivated and productive. And they also saved money. Mostly it was on energy bills, though, because people were still in the office. But in any case, savings. So great. During the pandemic, things changed. So the reason why we're seeing it now and not any other time was mainly because the majority of office work was transferred over to people's living rooms and companies realised that they can mostly trust workers to do their jobs properly and the culture of presenteeism is more absurd than ever on places like Slack and Microsoft Teams. So now is the moment the four-day week could finally be a thing. And mentioning the 2008... Um, scheme in Germany, Kurzarbeit, is, is super relevant because Germany, I think, still has one of the shortest working weeks in Europe. You might think it's France, but it's, it's actually Germany by quite a few hours, um, shorter than the UK, Portugal, Italy, Spain. Um, so that's kind of hung around, and Germany is well known for having very high levels of productivity. It sort of prides itself on that. So how could a big change to a four-day working week across the world work in practice? Yeah, I mean, it's worth, by the way, mentioning that the UK isn't far off the European Union average. So I think it's 32.2 no, hours and we're on 36.5. So we're not far off. I think that the hardest working people are in Romania, uh, where the average is far, far higher than, than the rest of Europe. But but yeah, you're right. I mean, some, some companies have asked their companies, uh, their employees to basically accept a, a pay cut in an effort to make um, avoid making redundancies. So in exchange for about a 20% um, cut in salary, people are offered a day off and that tends to be a Friday. So these are temporary measures though and people aren't likely to want to accept a pay cut for long, especially given the personal uncertainty that's been caused by the pandemic in a future recession. So what is being proposed and called for by some unions, think tanks and researchers is something a bit more drastic. So what they're asking for is it's basically companies to pay people to work Monday to Thursday and rely on some sort of furlough scheme on Fridays from the government so that they could cut costs without affecting people's salaries. Of course, it's debatable over here whether the UK government would be willing to fork out a load of money for a scheme like that. If you look at the cost of the furlough scheme, which was implemented at the start of the crisis, um, by, the end it, by the time it ends officially in October, it's estimated to be upwards of £100 billion in costs. 
adding on the cost of subsidising people's employment could be a step too far from this government. But you could argue that the 1.2 million jobs at risk could end up costing the Treasury far more. Again, this would be a sticking plaster for the situation we find ourselves in thanks to the coronavirus. But I spoke to Andrew Barnes, who's the author of the book The Four Day Week, and he's proposed something far more radical, which is basically scrap the five day week, forget about it and let people just do their jobs in full. Would this actually work in practice, though? Would I be able to sort of cram all of my um, all of my work for the week into four days? Um, wouldn't I just end up like spending like the first four days of the week doing like 12 hour days every day to make up the time? It's not possible, surely. Yeah, it is possible. You just, you have little faith. You haven't tried it before. So Barnes argues basically the company should stop pretending that we're productive, first of all. So he was citing research that shows um, that we're only truly productive for about three hours of the day and spend far more time than we should on office admin and dealing with kind of guff rather than doing useful work. So people are noticing this more and more as we work from home. James mentioned it before. Face-to-face meetings have become Zooms. Zooms have become emails. Emails have become online Slack messages. So suddenly most of those serendipitous moments that people bang on about still in the office become very obviously just a massive waste of time. So the majority of the interactions that we have um, don't necessarily lead to productive work and we should stop pretending that that's not the case. So it's, it's an interesting situation here because he was basically saying that, you know, you wouldn't end up working 12-hour days. That's not the way it would work. People would have to reevaluate their workload and say, okay, time does not equate productivity. We're going to rethink the way that we work and we're going to reduce the amount of work that you have to do so that you can fit it in four days and stop dealing with all of the ridiculousness that ends up being peripheral to your actual productive um, work life. So it's interesting because we, we obviously know that startups have been offering these kinds of things for some time now. They've been offering four days a week as perks, not only because people want it, but because burnout is fast and it's completely devastating in a team where there's a massive pressure to grow. Now, we have already talked about um, the burnout that we're feeling during coronavirus in this podcast. People were aware that, you know, the isolation that one feels at home, the pressure um, that of a pandemic where you might die at any moment is, is quite serious and we're all suffering from chronic stress. So if companies don't really start thinking about people's workloads anyway, we're going to have a problem. So this this is a situation they're going to have to deal with anyway, whether they go for a four-day week or not. But if companies do decide to move to a four-day week out of any other reason than desperation and saying, if you don't do it, we're going to have to cut jobs, they're going to have to put measures in place for people to not end up working those 12-hour shifts that Matt was talking about or be left with too much work and forced to make up for it on their days off. So experts told me that you can't just lop off a day of the week and hope that everything will turn out okay. It takes major cultural change to make a four-day working week stick. And part of it is managers learning to adjust people's workloads, managing expectations on things like projects for clients and sometimes blocking workers from checking into their emails when it's supposed to be their day off to get them used to that separation between work and home life again. And you could see over the coming months and years as more flexible working becomes commonplace what you're mentioning there Natasha about companies putting in place systems that that prevent people from working inefficiently if you like so you wouldn't be able to check messages after a certain hour. Your de- your device would be locked out, and it wouldn't take much for a startup or Google even to introduce features into products and services that lots of businesses use to stop them from getting at them after 5 p.m. That's just accepted as important for work-life balance, and we can put in place technical solutions to kind of solve quite a human problem. 
Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's relatively easy. I think the temptation is more, um, if you're sitting, you know, in a cafe on a Friday when you're supposed to be off, you might quickly check your email. Everyone's done it. It's just not healthy. It's not healthy. It doesn't help burn out. There's no point to having a day off if you're working the entire time. And I know I've been guilty of that sort of thing. So that's fine. But it is, it's this huge kind of cultural shift that's needed for this to work. But the thing is, if you think about what I was saying before, we all used to work, well, we didn't because we weren't alive, but people used to work six days a week and they went to five days a week. The same shift is entirely possible. And you know what, in the next decade, you might be talking about working three days a week and there's no reason why we can't do it as long as it stays efficient. So... Yeah, I, I think I might um, start an uprising at Condé Nast if you guys are up for it. <laughs> Four I'm not day sure week announcing that on a company-owned <laughs> podcast, but sure, actually, they don't own it. It's a soft stuff. launch. Yes, <laughs> the revolution <laughs> with a soft launch. Uh, podcast at wired.co.uk. Have you been put on a four-day working week with a 20% pay cut or are you working long-term and on a four-day working week as part of a company policy that's remained unchanged? throughout the pandemic let us know how your company's dealing with things differently as we go through this time of unprecedented change podcast at wired.co.uk our second story this week matt burgess is about digital id cards the idea of id cards might be quite familiar to our uk listeners but for everyone just remind us what these are and why they're back yeah, so I'm going to take you back in time uh, first to begin with, because I think uh, for this story, and particularly, I guess, the UK context of it as well, um, the sort of history of what happened a decade or so ago is actually quite important. So during the early and mid-2000s, there was basically a huge debate and discussions around uh, the UK introducing compulsory ID cards. Um, this was a policy that was uh, championed by the Tony Blair Labour government at the time, um, and eventually sort of introduced over sort of a number of years really so the first sort of like discussions and debates around this were I think sort of 2003 2004 uh, and then sort of trials and uh, lots of back and forward went part went happened on this in terms of like coming around to sort of how it could be implemented and then towards the end of like 2009 2010 um, this is when the sort of legislation was fully passed and um, the sort of like rollout was starting to begin and people were uh, properly trialing these uh, ID cards these were physical ID cards um, and essentially they would have brought together huge amounts of data and information about people into one giant uh, database which was then cancelled and then made into uh, several other smaller databases Uh, but the idea was still fundamentally the same um, and at one point this was included uh, or planned to include a national identity register which was more of the sort of controversy than the actual physical ID cards themselves um, and this register was planned to hold up to 50 different p- pieces of information on a person so uh, it could include your 10 fingerprints uh, a digitized face scan um, your addresses and previous addresses in the UK um, and lots of other types of information such as a national insurance number and lots of sensitive details so essentially this was all passed but controversial and then in 2010 there was the uh, general election and the ultimate Uh, Conservative and Lib Dem uh, coalition government, which scrapped um, the entire legislation in its first um, first bill that was presented to Parliament. And so they're back now. What's the government saying it's going to do now? 
Yeah, so this week there has been some sort of like mild internet controversy um, around uh, the idea of digital ID cards. So bringing uh, this sort of technology into the 21st century. Um, And even though, I mean, it was the 21st century anyway, wasn't it? Because it was the early 2000s. But uh, bring it into a more sort of modern day uh, setting. Um, But things have come a long way since then. So back in 2004, 2005, um, we obviously didn't have things such as the iPhone face book was in its sort of very early years um there was no such thing as uber airbnb etc and our basically our technological lives were very very different um so now we create a lot more data we put a lot more data about ourselves out there already um and in a report this week by the times it was suggested that the conservative government is planning on introducing digital id cards as part of uh, dominic cummings um data revolution um to be honest, like um, the reality of this is going to be a lot less dystopian and a lot more mundane. So there isn't actually a plan for ID cards or digital ID cards to be introduced. Um, and the sort of suggestions come from a sort of long running uh, government plan um, to introduce digital identities so it's slightly different to sort of an id card so we're not talking about a system that has got one central database where all your information is stored we're talking about something that is really more of a system to sort of uh, allow you to log into services and um and to sort of like uh verify your identity to say who you are actually is and what is actually happening is the government is planning to update its existing laws around digital ids and it's going to trial a document checking document checking service pilot which um is probably as sort of mundane as it sounds um so this plan and this pilot is to actually uh basically run a system where um the u authorities in the uk can check your passport details are saying who you are claiming to be when you try to use a service so 11 private companies will be able to check passport details against the passport office's database and give a yes or a no response so you would uh, when you're trying to sort of use a a financial product or sign up for a new service you would um, say this is my identity this is my passport that shows it's me you provide them with your passport number you will provide them with your name date of birth etc a few details and then they would essentially just come back and say yes or no, this is not you, you cannot use this service, or you can use this service. And so it's that simple, really. So is this a good idea or not? Um, it sort of depends. Um, so at the moment, there are, um, we use digital identities online in lots of different ways. So um, if you think about sort of the services where you can log in with Apple or Google or Facebook to other platforms, that is a type of digital identity. Um, this sort of scenario, we're talking about a lot more sort of government-led services and public sector services um, and the government's sort of like justification for trying trying to do this and to try to sort of in- introduce these types of checks and the idea of a digital identity is to really sort of like reduce a lot of uh, admin and burden so uh, the government says that when people are trying to buy or sell homes they're required to prove their identity to mo- multiple times to multiple different parties so your estate agents uh different contractors uh surveyors etc might need to prove who you are uh, and to do this you might have to send across your passport details or a scan of your passport or uh, other documents that sort of prove who you are and in multiple cases this is like multiple different documents are required uh, to be able to do so and these have to be sent through the post it's slow it's admin it's burden it, it's a pain um and this this type of process exists for lots of different things such as opening new bank accounts and uh, other types of systems. So um, 
the idea of this generally is to reduce a bit of the burden and lots of other countries essentially around the world are doing this as well so Estonia is thought to be uh, an outlier in this sort of uh, scenario that has created a digital ID system that is used for voting GP records uh, opening businesses paying your taxes lots of other different things and everybody in Estonia has ID cards with this sort of information connected to them um, there are caveats that it's uh, the country's got a small population it started creating its digital inf infrastructure from scratch um, and there are lots of different sort of like um, things that make Estonia different to a country like the UK or the US which has got very different population demographics um, and on the other hand there's the idea of uh, India um, which has got a different surveillance not surveillance system but ID system which has got details of 1.2 billion people uh, and is very surveillance heavy and leads to the country's sort of like overall uh, surveillance efforts against its populations. It wouldn't be a story about digital government unless Estonia somehow got its uh, got its little bit in there somehow. So I'm glad we've had the Estonia reference. But I wonder, are there things that Estonia is getting right or examples from other countries that can show us what we can do to make digital ID cards you know, work correctly? Because I don't mean to be a cynic, but sometimes governments don't necessarily go about these things in the best way. So how do we make sure we don't end up making those mistakes? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think your cynicism is very um, sort of valid in a lot of these cases, Matt. I mean, in the UK in particular, over the last uh, few months, we've seen uh, obviously sort of extenuated circumstances because of the pandemic, but um, the test and trace app has failed. Um, the algorithms... Uh, uh, around the A-levels and exam results that we've talked about very recently a couple of times on the podcast, examples of how governments don't always get technology right. Um, and I think that there is worth pointing out as well that sort of the pandemic has increased um, the overall idea of um, people having digital identities through the idea of immunity passports, which could show whether you have had coronavirus or not and allow you to do certain things or not do certain things. Um, so with the idea generally of digital IDs in the UK, a lot of the people that I've been speaking to this week have been saying that the UK really needs to sort of like outline what we want to do and what we want to achieve with these um, because even though there's been uh, talk of this in in the press over the last week um, the sort of concrete plans behind this are not really there yet and the pilot scheme that's going to run is going to be on a very sort of set amount of uh, individual domains um, rather than sort of like widely uh, spread and sort of publicly available but there are a few things that we do need to sort of get right so uh, we do need to make sure that data is put protected in the correct ways uh, so who need who can access data if it is stored in in sort of databases uh, needs to be understood and controls need to be put in place uh, we need to make sure that people have alternatives um, so if you don't have access to technology or you don't have a passport or other types of traditional physical identity forms how can you use these types of systems are they equitable to everybody uh, are they worth building are they worth creating um, lots of these sort of questions around sort of should we develop this technology and how it should be used still need to be answered in the UK and one final thing to sort of leave it on is um, the idea of um, mission creep coming into these systems so a system being set up for one purpose and then expanding to other purposes um, so the last time that ID cards in the UK were properly sort of rolled out and used was during World War II uh, when a uh, ID card system was set up and that originally had three purposes and by the time it was scrapped in 1952 uh, it was being used for 39 different 
types of purpose. Um, so it just shows how these systems can expand and uh, grow. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Uh, I know we've got some listeners in Estonia. Uh, what lessons can we learn from what's been happening over there? Or if you're in another country that's got the whole digital society thing down to a T, get in touch, podcast.wired.co.uk. Let us know how things are being done elsewhere in the world and what lessons other countries can learn, be they good or bad. Our third and final story this week, you've kept us waiting long enough, Matt Reynolds. Tell us more about lobsters peeing from their faces. Well, James, I'm going to keep you waiting ever so slightly longer before we build up to the lobster pea extraordinaire. First, I want to talk a little bit about bees. Now, I don't know about either of you, but sometimes I look around at my fellow humans and I'm a little bit worried that we're not necessarily getting this whole social distancing thing. But if we want a little bit of inspiration, we might do well to look instead to our nearest honeybee colonies. So they've got loads and loads of methods of you know really clever sanitizing strategies that make them quite expert social distances so bees to get started have this really quite neat strategy where what they do is they share small little bits of molecules that look like viruses among each other and it lends immunities to each other so if you like it's a little bit like they're sharing a vaccine right without the need to have this vaccine come from elsewhere got another a couple of other tricks as well so bees coat part of their hive in a sticky resin which is called propolis uh, and it's known to have antimicrobial properties in a way that's a little bit like when humans use hand sanitizer when they arrive at a shop so they've got a few clever tricks they're using to uh keep their hive nice and sanitized okay so bees are excellent examples of socially distanced animals should we all be being more like bees? Well, I would maybe listen to this next bit before you start taking tips from honeybees, because here's the other bit about bees and social distancing. Bees are completely ruthless. As soon as one member of a colony gets infected with a pathogen, the niceties are over. Forget about hand sanitizing, forget about um, you know passing on your vaccine. It's business time. Typically, what bees do is they physically drag the stricken bee out of the hive and toss it to the ground where the bee sadly perishes. In fact, studies have even found that bees sometimes remove themselves from the colony altogether when they fall ill, a phenomenon known as altruistic suicide. So rather than wait for their pals to, you know, chuck them out of the hive, they're like, guys, I'm going, I'm ill, see you all later. And while that might sound ruthless, and I'm not really advocating that humans follow that same uh, pattern, because obviously it's quite nasty, What's really interesting is this shows us about how what bees, um, how bees think about survival, if you like. So for bees, the survival of the co- colony is paramount in a paramount in a way that is quite alienous, alien to us. So bees preserve their genes through the survival of the colony. So when they take merciless or suicidal actions, what they're really doing is saving themselves. In a sense, they're saving their genetic material. And they're just deciding, well, once I'm sick, my presence is no longer useful to the hive. In fact, it's the opposite of useful, useful, so I'll get rid of myself. And and by doing that, trying to ensure the survival as as many members of the hive as possible. 
I like bees, but I'll be honest with you, the idea of doing a sort of Logan's Run style, you know, if your grandmother falls ill, you put her in a hut on the edge of a town and just wait for her to die, uh, seems a bit brutal to to me. I mean, is this... Because I thought bumblebees were the nicer of the insects. I know ants are pretty horrible as well to each other, but, but what about the other insects? Are, are they a little bit nicer than, than bees? Are they just as horrible? What What's the deal with that? Well, it's interesting. Maybe your decision about whether they're nice or horrible would depend on how much human um, human emotions we project onto these animals. So let's use ants as an example. So ants have evolved social distancing practices in order to stop the spread of pathogenic funguses throughout their nests. So sometimes these funguses get in and they can spread really quite rapidly throughout an ant colony and what some scientists found so there's a study by researchers in austria and switzerland they found that there's this really significant degree of separation between forager ants um, who are much more likely to encounter this fungus outside and the queen or young workers nursing larvae so basically they found that if ants were much more likely to come over to come in contact with a pathogen they might bring back they were you know much more likely to spend more time away from the hive uh, away from the colony sorry and away from individuals in that colony. And in fact, that's not totally alien to us. It might remind you of when healthcare workers much more likely to come into contact with coronavirus, they would go to a hotel or they would isolate away from their family. I'm sure we heard loads of really sad stories about healthcare workers that couldn't see their family for the, you know, the month or two months at the peak of the pandemic because they, were, they didn't want to put them at risk. And actually we see in ants, they do a similar kind of thing. They say, well, I'm possibly more at risk here, so I'm not going to bring it back to possibly infect all of the rest of you okay so we've done the bees we've done the ants and other insects by association now it must be time for lobster pee it's time for lobster pee so what we know about lobsters is they're actually pretty remarkable social distances so they can tell when one of their group is under the weather just by a chemical chemical marker that is dispersed in the sick lobster's urine so as i said that urine comes out from nozzles just underneath their eyes so essentially a lobster is kind of wandering about you know gushing this urine out of its face saying uh guys by the way i'm sick just I'm sick, leave me, please don't come near me. And that's really, really interesting because what that means is because this cue spreads into the surrounding waters and lobsters are really good at detecting chemicals within the water, it means that other lobsters don't even need to catch sight of the infected crustacean to know they're nearby. If you compare that to a human, pretty difficult to tell if a human is sick before you're, you know, you need to be in the same room as them to know if they're ill or not. You can't see someone coming around the corner unless they're really hacking their um, guts out. You're probably not going to be able to tell whether they're ill. And even more interestingly, even if they are, you know, coughing their guts out, we're not very good at telling if they actually are ill or not. So we might like to think that when someone comes into the office and they sneeze or they cough we might like to think that we're really able to tell whether they're ill or could infect us but research has actually shown that we're not has actually shown that we're not able to distinguish healthy coughs from infectious ones so maybe we'd be a bit better off taking the lobster's cue and giving this really really clear signal because at least lobsters know is that healthy pee or is that infectious pee there's no confusion there unlike with humans so sorry what what lesson can we learn from lobsters because i'm slightly <laughs> unsure about the the transferable skill sets there 
So what you need to do is you need to get people to pee and then just think, <laughs> what, is that healthy? Does that pee smell healthy? And then that's better than a cough because, no, actually, I think you're right. What I'm saying is when someone comes into the office and is coughing, we can't really tell if that really means they're ill and infectious or if that is just a, you know, a normal cough or a normal sneeze. You know, people sneeze when they, they see the sun or bright light, for instance. And maybe we should have a better gauge of how, you know, we should be more realistic and say, well, actually, if they're coughing at all, maybe we're better off staying further away because we just don't know if they're infectious or not. Unlike lobsters, whereas they can be pretty sure that if they're coming up to someone and they don't smell infectious, they're probably okay. Gotcha. So we're not really that much like bees or ants or lobsters, but there are plenty of animals out there in the wild who are a bit more like humans. So is there any species that does socially distance being more like us and that we could learn a little bit from? There is. So there was a study that was published earlier this year, in fact, just as the COVID-19 pandemic was getting underway, that looked at how mandrel monkeys make choices when they're distancing themselves from individuals that have become sick. So mandrels are able to tell when a member of their group is ill by smelling their faeces. And obviously that's perfectly applicable to humans because we all do that as well. Um, No, not that bit, right? So they have a similar lobster-esque thing. So they smell faeces, they're like, oh, that person's probably ill. But interestingly, with mandrels, what this research found out was that mandrels actually continue to groom and remain physically close to their immediate family members, even when they catch the infection. So for instance, it's like if my partner came home and she was ill, I I could be as ruthless as a lobster and say, no, you're not coming into my rock. You're going way out there. Don't come in. I'm going to save myself. I could be as ruthless as a bee and say, "Get get out of the flat, fend for yourself. Unlike either of those, we're a bit more like mandrels. I'll say, okay, we've got a close relationship. Let's stay inside and, you know, I'll, I'll get ill because that's the price I pay for a closeness of a relationship. So we actually tend to find that some of these animals are a little bit closer to humans. They have relationships that kind of outweigh the pure infection. Do I get infected or not calculation that these other animals are making? I ordinarily try to come up with uh, a way of asking a question that might be relevant for our listeners to get in touch with us about, but I'm not really sure what it is on this occasion. So podcast at wired.co.uk, if you have any thoughts about lobsters peeing out of their face as a warning sign that they might be ill. Um, Matt, unless you, unless you had a more, uh, sort of a more appropriate question to ask our listeners? I mean, do you think that you can... Maybe our listeners say they're really good at knowing if someone's really sick. They can definitely tell a sick cough from just a, I've got a bit of steak in my throat cough. Maybe they think they're you know, great at doing that. I would, I would love to know uh, what their social distancing tricks are and whether they've taken any inspiration from animals. Podcast at wired.co.uk. If you are a social distancing superstar, let us know. Uh, Time for a couple of your emails now. Oh no, Matt Reynolds, you've got the first one. I have. So Mike wrote in, we were talking last week about lifts and the risks of using lifts in office buildings. So Mike wrote in, I'd rather take the lift for a few floors than walk behind a person struggling up the stairs and uh, dripping their exhaled breath onto me. Now, I have to say, Mike, sounds like you're getting a little bit too close to that person, but we'll we'll get onto that in a second. Uh, Mike continues, for the same reason, I'm very worried about joggers in the park. And he asks, are joggers putting passers by at risk as they are forced to walk through a long plume of potentially virus-laden 
breath. And I'm really glad you brought this up, Mike, because in fact, way back in April, a unpublished scientific paper suggesting that runners could leave behind a cloud of potentially virus-laden particles as they as they you know, run past people received this this paper received a bunch of attention and criticisms after it itself went viral. So this is a question that lots of people have. In reality, what we do know is the risk of contracting coronavirus during any outdoor activity, like passing by a runner, for example, is very, very low. So the reason for that is, is that virus particles will be much more dispersed in the outdoors. So they'd have a harder time, a much harder time making their way to you, especially if you're wearing a mask and you keep a two metre distance from them. Now, what you really should be worrying about or when you're making decisions about where you go or what you do are thinking about okay well where are these big transmission events and this is why Natasha was talking about lifts because most transmission takes place in closed environments like bars or workplaces or churches especially environments where people are raising their voices perhaps getting very close to each other to be heard so it's more important to consider proximity and location and duration of contact than the activity itself so I wouldn't necessarily be going out of my way to run through a cloud of sneeze I wouldn't necessarily head in that that direction but I'd definitely rather take my chances out running or out in a park where there are runners than cramming myself into a work lift that wasn't properly socially distanced so you're basically saying we all need to channel our inner lobster uh, yeah, I, I, I'm interested by that jump of logic. Um, but you know what? Be more lobster. Be more lobster or be more bee or ant, depending on your personal preference. We also had an email this week from Linda all the way in Melbourne. Yeah, so Linda, again, was talking about lifts um, and she brought up perhaps one of my favourite um, types of lift, um, which is the paternoster. She, she says... Perhaps it's time for it to make a big comeback. They still exist, she says, in some early 20th century buildings. I was lucky to try one in Munich. They got knocked out by modern day lifts for a number of reasons, but they would work well in this post-COVID-19 situation. Check it out online, she says, and I recommend that you do. So it's uh, basically, if you don't know what it is, um, it's passenger elevators that have open compartments and don't really stop. So if you imagine a sort of lift well, and you imagine sort of things going up and down, it's basically like you're in a drawer and it goes up and they just don't stop. So you can get on or get off any floor that you please and they went out of fashion Linda's right when lifts went mainstream and they're also pretty terrible for disabled people or older people who are not sprightly and could get caught in between the floors and all that kind of stuff but but she says what's not to like and I agree I think they should make a comeback I'm very much in favor of them I think they're brilliant and they're weird so actually looked up um, what kind of buildings still have them available and the tallest remaining pattern to lift in the world is believed to be the one in the Arts Building in Sheffield University. It has 38 cars and is 255 feet tall. Interestingly, the Paternoster is proven to be faster than conventional lifts. So the BBC used that same Sheffield Paternoster lift to demonstrate how 50 students can travel 18 floors in less than 10 minutes in the Paternoster there. And in, in comparison, the conventional lift managed to transport only 10 students in the same amount of time. So, yeah, it's, it's a brilliant system that I think is kind of a little bit weird, um, which is nice. And I think it should definitely come back um i was gonna say i also looked up what happens if you stay in a paternoster lift by mistake and don't get off and the answer is nothing you just go round and round but it's not great for the mechanics of it so don't do it if you end up in the sheffield one matt burgess you went to sheffield university did you spend many an hour riding up and down the paternoster lifts 
I'd like to say I actually did, but I never went in it. Um, I was in the building uh, a couple of times where it is, and it is a very big lift um, sort of shaft, and the building is very tall. Um, so it is, like, there are videos of it on YouTube as well, so you should have a look if you're not sure what a Paternoster is. But um, they are, like, quite remarkably odd, weird, quirky things. And I don't know, I don't know where they were invented, Natasha, but for me it seems like it would be one of those sort of, like, weird British inventions that um maybe didn't get too far um in reality in use because people just didn't get it they had their moment it's the moment passed about you know a few decades ago but it's, they had that they had their moment i think the the thing is is that lifts were obviously a lot more convenient and safer and you know less of a faff i suppose and so um they kind of went out of fashion but you know that there were some designers that earlier this year said that could be the solution to the COVID lift situation for contained spaces, just bring back the paternoster, but make it a sort of modern day one, um, which is um, a little bit safer. So we'll see. Keep listening to the Wired podcast every week for Matt Burgess and Natasha's thoughts on lifts generally, and Matt Reynolds talking about animals that pee from their faces. Thank you so much for listening as always. Podcast at Wired uk with your correspondence thoughts animal facts anything that you'd like to share with us we've had quite a few people recently sending in pictures of plants shower fittings we'll we'll happily look at your pictures um we we won't bring them onto the podcast because obviously that's quite difficult to do um but uh we always appreciate hearing from you podcast at wired.co.uk that's it for this week we'll be back again same time next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.